0: Hello, and welcome to A Daily Walk with Pastor John Randall, a ministry of Calvary Chapel San Juan Capistrano. Open your Bible and join us, as together we seek to grow in our daily walk with the Lord.
1: As we come to the ninth chapter of this epistle, it marks for us the second major division within this letter. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 deal with the subject of the nation of Israel. At the time when this letter was written, the temple in Jerusalem, it was still standing. The sacrificial system was still in place. The religious rituals were still being practiced But the religious rituals, as well as the sacrificial system, were not necessary due to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And some of the Jews actually believed in Jesus, but not all of them believed. Furthermore, those Jews who did believe, who were saved, we're having difficulty with Gentiles getting saved and becoming a part of the body of Christ. And one of the questions that Paul would have heard repeatedly was this. What about all of the promises that God made to the nation of Israel? Are all of those promises to be forgotten? Where does the Jewish person stand in relationship to God in this Dispensation, has God cast away his people forever? In order to answer these types of questions, Paul reveals God's plan for Israel. In Romans chapter 9, Paul deals with God's past dealing with Israel in their election. In Romans chapter 10, we observe God's present dealing with Israel in their rejection. And then in chapter 11, we witness God's future dealing with Israel in their restoration. Now, before we launch into these chapters, it is important for me to mention that there are those today who believe in what is called replacement theology, also known as supersessionism. And it essentially teaches that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. And those who believe this theology believe the Jews are no longer God's chosen people and that God doesn't have specific future plans for the nation of Israel any longer. And among these different views of this relationship between the church and Israel, some say the church has replaced Israel, that's replacement theology, or the church is an expansion of Israel, that's covenant theology, Or there are those that say the church is completely distinct and different from Israel altogether. Replacement theology teaches that the church is the replacement for Israel and that the promises that were made to Israel are now to be fulfilled within the church. Folks, we don't believe here in replacement theology. We do believe that God still has a plan and a purpose for the nation of Israel. That's why these chapters are so vitally important. By the way, when you think about replacement theology, one of the problems is that this type of theology was held by men hundreds of years ago. They've all died. And I say that to say this, they did not believe, they could not imagine They couldn't foresee that one day a nation that had been dispersed for over 1900 years would actually come back into the land and be recognized as the sovereign state of Israel. They couldn't see it. Thus they taught that God must be done with Israel. But God wasn't done with Israel. We're the generation that has actually seen prophecy fulfilled as the nation has come back to the land. They're living there presently. I mean, that, it, God is fulfilling his word. So listen, if anybody tells you God's done with Israel, just say, read your Bible. That's not true. God still has a plan for them as we see unfold, even at the present time. Also, a great proof for prophecy The nation of Israel. If you don't believe in prophecy, look at the nation of Israel and see what God has foretold that is coming to pass even at the present time. It's exciting. When the Apostle Paul began his ministry, he was called to the Gentiles. But he still had a great desire to reach the Jews. He understood where they were coming from. He struggled with Jesus Christ being the Messiah. The book of Acts bears record to the fact that before he was saved, he actually was persecuting the church. But when he met Jesus, everything changed. And this desire that Paul had to see his own countrymen, his own people get saved, was actually, it was a burden on his heart. And he mentions it here as chapter nine begins. We see Paul's pain for his people. It says, I tell you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. As Paul begins to share about the burden he had for his people to be saved, he prefaces his statements by saying, I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth. Even the Holy Spirit bears witness. Why why the preface? Why say that? Because the Jews hated Paul. I mean, every synagogue sermon he preached, they challenged. Every church that he started, they tried to disrupt or divide or destroy. When he was in Jerusalem, they almost beat him to death. And in spite of their harsh and unfair treatment, he still cared deeply for their salvation. So he's saying, listen, you might think that that I'm against them. I want you to know something. I love them. I'm not lying here. the, The Lord is my witness. I care for their salvation. In fact... He said it's it's a grief in my heart there's sorrow and this word for sorrow means to cause intense pain anguish to be tormented Paul said I have such grief and sorrow that is continual and unceasing for my people I want to see them get saved For those of you who have friends or family who do not yet know Christ you know this burden You know what it's like to have the joy of your salvation, but also the desire and the compassion for people who are unsaved. People who right now are literally on their way to hell. They're unsaved. And that should create within us a heart that intercedes a burden for their salvation. To to long for them to find what it is that we've discovered in Christ. This was Paul's burden. And his burden was so great that he says something here in verse 3. He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The word accursed here is the word anathema. And it means more than just exclusion. Exclusion or excommunication. It actually means, what Paul is literally saying, is if it were possible, I myself would be eternally separated from God so that my people could get saved. Put it another way, I would go to hell if all of them could go to heaven. That's the passion and the desire Paul had for his people to be saved. Of course, this wasn't possible, nor was it necessary. Jesus already went to the cross. But you have to admire the concern that Paul had for people who were lost. This, this is a similar concern that Moses had for the nation of Israel. You remember there in Genesis when Moses had gone up onto the mountain, Mount Sinai, to receive the law of God. While he was up there receiving the law of God, the people were down below and they made a golden calf. And they started to worship it. You remember And the Lord says, hey, you need to get down from here. Your people, Moses, they're they're worshiping the golden calf. And so Moses runs down the hill with all the Ten Commandments. He sees the people dancing around the golden calf. And what did he do? He took the two tablets and he broke them. Only guy that broke all Ten Commandments at once. (laughs) Threw them down. And then he went and he saw the golden calf being worshipped and he took it, remember, he broke it in pieces. He ground it into powder. He put it in their water and he made them drink it. And then he said to the people, whoever is on the Lord's side, come over here. And you remember it says just the Levites came over. And that day, those who were unwilling to side with the Lord, 3,000 people died on that day. And the Lord came to Moses. You remember the Lord came to Moses more than once. Hey, Moses, how about if I start over with you? How about if I wipe all these people out and I'll just start fresh with you? I mean, there might have been certain days when the Lord asked that question. Moses thought, you know what, Lord? This is a difficult group. I mean, (laughs) but this particular day, he intercedes on behalf of the people. And he said to the Lord, much like Paul said there in Exodus, he said, yet now I pray if you will forgive their sin. But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Moses said, Lord, if you're going to wipe these people out, then blot me out. The Lord was moving on the heart of his shepherd to intercede for his people. God had a plan for Israel. But folks, one thing I've discovered is that loving the lost is the first step in leading them to Christ. Are you motivated by the love of God? What was it that caused Paul such sorrow and anguish in addition to them not receiving the message of the gospel one thing that Paul knew is that the people, the Jewish people, took for granted their privileges. He mentions them here in verse 4 and 5. Who are Israelites. Notice the privileges here. To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises of whom are the fathers according to the flesh. Christ came. Here Paul lists for us eight un unprecedented privileges that were given to the nation of Israel. The first he mentions is the adoption. The nation of Israel was the only nation that God ever referred to as his son. When Moses went down to Egypt to deliver the people from their slavery, you remember in Exodus chapter 4 verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, then you shall say to Pharaoh, Israel is my son my firstborn. Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, this is reiterated. When it says, Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. No other nation had that kind of relationship with God. He referred to them as his son, his firstborn. Also, they had the glory, the glory. Paul is talking about the Shekinah glory of God. When the nation of Israel was led out of Egypt in their exodus, you remember that the Lord led them, a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. When they had constructed the tabernacle, that church in the wilderness, if you would, it says that God's glory filled that tabernacle. And it was so much so that Moses couldn't even go in to minister at one point. Later on, when, they, when Solomon built the temple, again, God's glory filled the temple to the point, 1 Kings tells us, that the priests were not able to go in and minister because of the thickness of the glory of God. No other nation had that kind of experience. In addition to the adoption, the glory, they also had the covenants. The covenants refers to the agreements that God entered into with the nation of Israel. These included the Abrahamic covenant, God's agreement that he made with Abraham there in Genesis. It also included the Mosaic covenant that he made with Moses and the Davidic covenant that he entered into with King David. No other nation had these kind of agreements made with them. This was unique. And then there was the law that they were given, the Ten Commandments, written with the finger of God, which became the legal code given to Israel. Then they had the service. That speaks of the ceremonial worship that was involved in the tabernacle and in the temple with the priests and the Levites, as recorded in Exodus and Leviticus. No other nation had that kind of relationship with God. And then they had the promises. The promises concerning the Messiah. The promises concerning the millennial reign. The promises concerning the land of Israel. And they had the fathers. That refers to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But as wonderful as all of these privileges were, there was one that superseded all that were just mentioned. You know what it was? It's right here. The Messiah, the Savior of the world, came from Israel. Born to a virgin Hebrew girl named Mary. Grew up in a Jewish community. Attended a Jewish synagogue. What, why wasn't he born in Italy? Why wasn't he born in you know, some other place? Why Israel? Because God chose the nation of Israel. That was his plan from the very beginning. That is an unprecedented privilege. And this Messiah, listen to this. Here, a proof text, verse 5, for the deity of Jesus Christ. Look at what it says. Make note of it. This is important. Of whom are the fathers and whom according to the flesh Christ came, Christ, that's the Messiah, that's Jesus, who is overall the eternally blessed God. Do you know what that says right there? Jesus is God. That's what it says. The Christ, the Messiah, not just the Son of God, but the eternally blessed God. Friend, listen, if anybody comes knocking to your door, hands you a magazine, or pedals up alongside of you and says Jesus isn't God, know this, they're wrong. Because the Bible says he is. He is God. That's what the Bible tells us, so don't be confused by it. And you can point to one This verse of many others that are found in Scripture. Now the question that would have been going through the minds of the Jews. Has God's word failed? Because there were some Jews who had rejected the Messiah, as Paul said. Was God done with the nation? Is that it? Has God's promise, has his everlasting covenant failed? And what we're going to find out as we continue in this chapter that even though many had rejected their Messiah, God still had a plan and purpose that he would ultimately fulfill. And to prove this point, Paul looks back to the history of the nation of Israel to give them examples. Look at verse 6. People were wondering, has the word of God failed? Paul responds, it is not the word of God that has taken no effect. Don't think that. Just because they've failed doesn't mean God has. Well, show us then, Paul. Look what he says. They are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Paul explains it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. Even though it may appear that way, the Lord will still accomplish his purposes. And he goes on to show an example. He says this. Pay close attention here. Not everybody that comes from Israel is ultimately of Israel. You say, what does that mean? Meaning, you might have the DNA of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in your body, but that doesn't mean that you have access to the promises simply because you are a relative. It takes more than that. It wasn't determined by their natural descent, in other words. But according to God's plan and purpose in election. God always had a plan for the nation of Israel. Even when they failed, God still would accomplish his purposes. I take great comfort in that, by the way. That even when we fail, God doesn't fail. He never does. Just because they had been born into the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't mean that they had eternal life and entrance into God's kingdom for eternity. Although many of them actually believed that. They believed it. They had a false sense of security. That is why when John the Baptist began his ministry there in the Jordan and the religious leaders were encircling him and asking him who he was, you remember that John responded in Matthew's gospel in chapter three. He said to them, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and don't begin to say to yourselves, they were saying to themselves, don't begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. We're we're related to Abraham. We're the chosen people. John said, listen, I say to you, God's able to raise up children of Abraham from these stones. Don't have a false sense of security because of your relationship to Abraham to think that that's what saves you. That's not not the reason. Jesus also was confronted by this in his ministry. When he spoke to the religious leaders, John chapter 8, this was their response in verse 33. They answered him, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say we will be made free? They had this security and the fact that they were related to Abraham. This was the mentality. And therefore, to prove that not all are of Israel who claim to be, the Apostle Paul looks at two prime examples in Israel's history. The first example is Abraham's two sons whose names were Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was a type of the flesh, where Isaac was a type of faith. Two of them came from the same father. Two of them came from Abraham. But both of them were not part of the promise that they would receive. And that is the point that Paul is going to make. Now, as we get into this, listen carefully, folks. Can I exhort you in love and encourage you as your friend, as your pastor? Read the Bible. Read the Old Testament. Because there are references here... What what Paul is talking about takes place in the Old Testament. I'm going to be referring to things that are found in the book of Genesis. And if you haven't read Genesis, you might say, what are you talking about? And I'll tell you, I'm talking about what happened in Genesis. That's why it's so important to read through the entire Bible because it all connects. I come back to the story. Verse 7. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. Just because they're born of the flesh doesn't mean that they're children of God, but he says the children of promise are counted as the seed for this word, this is the word, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. All right, let me give you a little history lesson here from the book of Genesis. When God first appeared to Abraham when he was living in Ur of the Chaldees, he said, I want you to leave your country and your family and go to a place that I will show you. The Bible says, obediently, by faith, he went out not knowing where he was going, and the Lord led him into the land. Meanwhile, on his journey of faith, God also made promises to Abraham, one of which is that he and Sarah, although older in age, would have a son, and from that son, Isaac, from this child that would be born to them, by faith, they had to believe it, would come more descendants than Abraham could number. So his descendants were promised him, as well as the land was promised him. It was an everlasting covenant that God made, and so Abraham believed it. God says, "I account it to you as righteousness." You believe what I said. Well, he continues on his journey. He has many more birthdays. He's getting older. He's getting older. Sarah's definitely getting older, and still no child. And so Sarah comes up with an idea. You know what, Abraham? I think we can. I think we should help God out. How about you have a relationship with Hagar? Remember that girl we picked up in Egypt? You can have a relationship with her and we'll have a child by proxy. She'll give birth. I won't have to go through the pain. And then we'll raise the child ourselves. How about that? And God's promise will be fulfilled. Abraham was like, all right. So he has a relationship with Hagar and out pops Ishmael, a type of the flesh. What they could produce. Look what, look what we have here. But God didn't recognize the work of the flesh. Oh, he came from Abraham, yes. But he wasn't the the son of the promise, you see. And so later on, what happens, the Lord says, hey, comes to Abraham again. Hey, Abraham, by the way, remember that promise I made to you about Sarah? Still going to happen. Like, Lord, she's in her 90s. Like, are you kidding me? Yes, it's going to happen. It's going to be by faith. Sarah's laughing about it. She thinks, that's hilarious. Really? Now? Now we're going to have a child? I mean, this this just seems unthinkable. But God said, next time this year. And so, sure enough, she had a child. His name was Isaac. His name means laughter. I love it. You can see why. Everybody's going to laugh when they hear, she said, that, that I gave Abraham a child in my 90s. Amazing. But then when it was time to wean the child, Isaac... Ishmael, now a teenager, began to laugh and despise the son of the promise. And so Abraham had to separate himself from Ishmael. And from Ishmael would come the descendants who would be even uh, against Israel at the present time. They're in the Middle East. But they were divided one from another. Both were descendants of Abraham is the point. But only one of them was the son of promise. Why is that? Because that's God's decision. That was God's purpose and plan from the very beginning. In the same way, just because they were descendants of Abraham, like Ishmael, it's not of the flesh. It had to be of faith. We see through this example that God's purpose was still fulfilled, even though Abraham and Sarah had tried to interfere. Folks, I want you to understand something today as it relates to this. Christianity is the same way. It is not by natural descent. No one, I always am worried when I ask someone, hey, when did you become a Christian? You know what their response is? I was born a Christian. No, you weren't. You can't. There's no child that comes out of his mother's womb and says, I confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I repent of my sin that I've been born with. No one does that ever. You have to be reborn. Born of the spirit, born again, Jesus said. You have a physical birth, but you have to have a rebirth, Jesus said. A spiritual birth. You're not born a Christian. You're not a Christian because you attend this church. You're not a Christian because your mom's a Christian. You're not a Christian because your dad's a Christian. Or you grew up in a Christian home. Your faith has to be your own. God doesn't have grandchildren. He just has children. You got to be reborn into this family. God, it says, according to his election. Folks, can I just say this? When we talk about the sovereignty of God and we talk about his election and his foreknowledge, let me just tell you this. There comes a point when our minds short circuit. We want to bring something to a logical conclusion which we cannot logically conclude. Some people have a real hard time with that. But it's as if when you come into Romans chapter nine, it's like you're, imagine this, it's like stepping into the pool. You start out, in the shallow end you're like oh this is fine i'm fine here i'm i'm not afraid this is good i understand i got i got i can see my feet and then you go a little bit deeper now you're up to your waist and now you're up to your now you get deeper in the pool Of Romans chapter 9, and you're treading, this is treading water. You're treading water, your legs are like, I I need floaty something, I'm treading, I don't understand. And then, you go a little bit further in these three chapters, and you know what ends up? You're in the ocean, where there are unfathomable depths. You don't even know how deep it is, and you'll never be able to understand it completely. I come to the understanding of God's sovereignty and His elective purposes with that mindset. Some of His ways are past finding out, and I can receive it. The danger is some people take the sovereignty of God and they isolate it from all of his other attributes. His grace, his mercy, his love, his his holiness, his righteousness, his justice. They isolate it and the God that they create is not the God of the Bible. And so it's very important as we approach this very humbly. And Paul points to this example and this history and God's election and God's purpose and God's plan. And he says in verse 11, the children, not yet even being born, having done good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. This was always God's plan, always God's purpose. But then verse 13, and here's where people have trouble. It says, Jacob I've loved, and Esau I have hated. Now people read that at first reading and think, wait a second. How could God hate Esau? That's so arbitrary. How could he do that? That can't can't be right. I thought God is love. Explain this to me. You might be saying, this passage, many struggle with, and debates have come from it. People say, I thought God loved everyone. Here's what you need to understand concerning this passage. First of all, always read it in its context. Know what's said before, what's said after. But also understand this. This quotation right here is taken from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Do you know when that was written? Over a thousand years after Jacob and Esau had lived their lives and nations had come from them. One nation of Edom that was godless, idolatrous. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people. They had already lived And God, looking back through his prophet, says, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Not he hated Esau, but the deeds of Esau, the life that he chose. God doesn't hate the sinner. He hates the sin that destroys the person.
0: Thanks for joining us today for A Daily Walk with Pastor John Randall. You'll find us online at adailywalk.org. That's a good place for resources to help you grow in your daily walk if you'd like prayer or have questions or comments you'd like to share with us our email is a walk at gmail.com you can also reach us by phone at 877-242-0828 that's 877-242-0828 to watch today's message again or any message you may have missed in the series download our free app simply search CCSJC. Be sure to stay tuned with Pastor John on Instagram at John P. Randall and on Twitter at PJRandall7. Make sure to join us next time when we'll again open the Word together seeking to apply God's truth to your daily walk.